0: Hi, I'm Megan Skidmore, and this is the Beyond the Shadow of Doubt. I'm a woman, daughter, sister, spouse, mother, life coach, and person of faith on a mission to normalize asking questions and allowing doubts, not only in a faith journey, but in all aspects of life. Join me in bringing this traditionally taboo topic out of the shadows of shame and into the light. I'm a firm believer that we normalize through more talking and engaging in discussion. More talking peels back, exposes, and erases the layers of shame associated with questions and doubts. When we're more authentic about our journey, we are more powerful because shame has no power in the face of authenticity. Don't forget to enter my podcast giveaway where the first prize is a $100 gift card. To do so, simply leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Upload a screenshot to my Google Doc. All the details and the link to enter, including the Google Doc, is in the show notes or in the bio of my Instagram profile. Today, artist, illustrator, and designer Charlotte Condi joins me on the podcast. Based in the Atlanta metro area, she spends a good chunk of time raising her four children attending school for dental hygiene, and designing and creating. Raised LDS, much of her work focuses on the spiritual, religious, and personal. Charlotte enjoys the deep waters of self-reflection and expression within her own lifelong wrestle with the divine. In her work as an artist, she shares, I want to begin focusing specifically on modern-day Latter-day Saint culture, holding up a mirror to the experience both in grace and self-reflection. I hope that as I explore this community that has given me so much, I can challenge it to take steps forward toward the light of a more expansive approach to spirituality and inclusivity in culture and doctrine. End quote. During our chat, Charlotte vulnerably shares coming out to herself as bisexual and then to others, as well as how her battle with scrupulosity has affected her spiritual journey. Welcome to part one of our interview, episode 45. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Beyond the Shadow of Doubt podcast. I am Megan Skidmore, your host. I'm so grateful to have Charlotte Condy with me here today. We were just chatting before starting and we realized, you know, Charlotte and I haven't met in person. We've met virtually through social media. And I just love that. I love that there's so many ways that we can connect, that technology builds so many bridges for us that weren't there, at least when I was growing up. <laughs> and I think you too, Charlotte. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'd love for my guests to share with us all about who they are and I uh, don't want to steal any of your thunder. So I would love to give you the opportunity to share with our listeners your your background, your origin story about you, your upbringing, where you're at now, your family, all the things. Okay.
1: Okay. So I was born in Long Beach in California. I am the oldest of four girls. Um, I was born in the church. My father's family have been in the church since its inception. My mother was a convert and dad baptized her in high school. Um, she came from a Methodist Presbyterian background okay um, so all of my extended family on her side are still with those denominations and I lived in Southern California till I was about 10 and then we moved to Utah we moved to Orem and that's where I went to high school okay um, and I went to BYU I was a BYU student I graduated in a BA in Asian studies. I was really good at languages and culture. I loved religion. I loved history. I loved how all those things intersected. And I had studied Japanese in high school. And then when the program was dropped my senior year, I went over to Utah Valley State College, which is UVU now and started Chinese and loved Chinese. I'm kind of a visual learner, and that language made a lot of sense to me. I failed so miserably at
0: romance languages. <laughs> I can't conjugate. I can't. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, I don't yeah, know how means. she's doing all these Asian languages. I would never be able to because I know I, Spanish, <laughs> and I've tried to learn some French and oh, Portuguese.
1: Um, yeah, help me if I ever get to Europe. <laughs>
0: I can't do it
1: but That's i can so manage funny. okay and it's funny even though i've lost a lot of my language skills i can still write and read pretty well awesome. in chinese so that was my education awesome. i got married when i was 19 actually oh, okay. at the at the end of my sophomore year i was i was young when i graduated high school i was 17 so i was also a really young bride I was still at BYU. My husband had graduated and he was working as an accountant and also getting his MBA through Utah state, like on the weekends. Um, And that's when we decided to adopt. We, I always knew getting pregnant was going to be a challenge for me. My body didn't have periods. It just didn't do that. And, and doctors didn't think that was a problem, (laughs) but when we, you know, wanted to do that. We didn't get the service or the care that we needed at the time in Provo, and no one took the time to really understand what I was dealing with physiologically. And what I had was PCOS, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36 years old. I'm so Um, sorry, yeah. And it's you know, and later when I had a miscarriage two years ago, all that, those years of loss, like it it came back up again, and it's just kind of like. I know that my life has been on an awesome trajectory and I don't ever want to regret or resent or wish for something different because I have all these tremendous blessings in my life that I'm so grateful for, even in the face of a lot of pain and challenge, but (laughs) still hurt by the fact that my problem could have been solved with maybe just a few Vitamins and someone to take the time to listen to me instead of shoo me off because they were busy dealing with all the other very pregnant BYU students. So,
0: um,
1: yeah, we um we adopted through LDS Family, which was functioning as an adoption service at the time, and so we we've, we've been really blessed because one we haven't had to wait too long for any of our children. But also that we've had such good relationships with our adopted children's parents. Um, mm. And we've been able to maintain open adoptions with all of them. Our That's oldest, yeah, yeah. Her parents were Cambodian refugees as children. And so they've had a difficult life. And so we we adopted her and recognizing the challenge that it was gonna be for her to grow up in Utah as a minority. Uh, as a trans-racially adopted child, we decided we didn't want to raise her there. We mm-hmm. just knew that that was not the right place for us. And we had always—I had wanted to go back to California. My husband had always wanted to live there. He's from Seattle, and so we decided to go back to where I was from, and mm-hmm. we moved back to Southern California. We were there from the end of 2004 until 2010. Okay. And when we were there, we adopted our two middle children, and both of them are biological siblings, and they are Pacific Islander. Their mother is Tongan, their father is Samoan. And those adoptions, likewise, have been such a tremendous blessing. And I, I like to think that we're all blessed with opportunities to grow and to learn and to... Um, For sure to get to know life in a new way that we hadn't before and mm-hmm. adoption is it's one of those hard things because you have multiple parties coming to the table with a lot of trauma and the very act of the adoption itself is trauma and so it's it's hard because there's a lot of pain involved but there's a lot of joy at the same time and and so you bond with people you don't know in a really unique way and so we we consider them our family and they have they adopted us as well so we tried to visit them regularly with the kids and we were there and and really foster those relationships because one it was important to us that they knew their family, but it was especially important that they knew their culture because that was not something that we could replicate for them, however much we tried. And, you know, we, I took my oldest to Cambodia town on the weekends for dance practice. And, you know, we tried to celebrate New Year's and and we tried the best we can with our middle kids as well but it was just once you left the West, which we did in 2010, um, actually in 2012, sorry. When we left, uh, the world changed like it just those people weren't in Wisconsin, which is where we went. Um, And so then the game was, while we can still communicate through social media or email or something, now I need to provide for them an environment where they are experiencing the very best diversity. I need diversity for my children because Mm -hmm. it's hard for them. To be the only brown kid. And they were in their elementary school in Wisconsin. Like Uh that was rough for them. And I didn't notice it too much until we moved to Georgia. And they said to me, Mom, I'm so glad I'm not the only brown kid anymore.
0: Okay. Because
1: we moved to an extremely diverse city with a good representation of most almost all races across the world. Georgia is basically an immigration terminal for the world immigrations. And So we have people from every corner of the world here, especially in our town where it's considered like the tech center of the East, kind of like Silicon Valley of the East. And so trying to raise kids with the understanding that they're going to have to navigate their adulthood in a way that I'll never experience or understand um, is a humbling experience for sure. And I, I know that some people don't understand my perspective of their parents. I'm I still call them their parents. I call them their mom and dad because I know that they didn't raise them, but I I give such deference and respect to them because I owe my parenthood to them. Um and and I know they love me too. And so it's it's complicated. Um it's a complicated relationship and feeling and especially as they are beginning to become adults my oldest two are high school graduates and Mm -hmm. and few things give me as much joy as seeing them interact with their biological families my oldest will go visit her her mother in california and you know go to disneyland and go have fun and that just it feels like such coming home for her. And I feel like to me, that's a success.
0: What a gift, what a gift that is. You can, you're the only one, you and your husband that is, are the only ones who could give that gift of love um, through welcoming and even encouraging that connection with your kids, with their biological families. It takes a great amount of love and passion and communication to make that come to fruition yeah it's um, um,
1: sorry <laughs> but maybe I can finish with my story um yeah. so we had left in 2012 from california because my husband was just working difficult hours it wasn't really the the life we had envisioned when we had small children he was working like 18 hour days and so he decided that he would go back to graduate school there were special programs for professionals who would like to go and become teachers in accounting. And so we went to Wisconsin, he got his PhD and, and that's how we ended up in Georgia uh, for the last six years. He teaches at Georgia tech and,
0: okay. And
1: so that's how we've been here. And I, (laughs) I was so depressed when I was, it was soon after we moved here and it was a mix of things. I had a thyroid disease that my thyroid suddenly started creating its own thyroxine again. And, and so my, my body needed to adjust to that. And I thought that my birth control was making me depressed. And so I went off it and after taking care of my body you know, I was like, "I, I can't live like this for another 25 years until I hit menopause. I need to like do something different. And I changed my diet and my supplements and my activity and everything. I was able to actually start having a period and and we had filled out all the paperwork to adopt one more time. We were ready to do that one more time, but we weren't having a lot of success. Um, we we're trying to do it independently. And the more we, we got into it, the more disappointed and really jaded we became with the program. Just in general, adoption in America felt uh, unethical. And even the idea of adopting internationally particularly felt unethical and so I said you know why don't we just put a pin in it and I mean we can try to get pregnant it's never happened before but we could certainly try it's not going to hurt anything and and we got pregnant almost immediately and so I had a baby wow six months shy of my 40th birthday wow and so yeah (laughs) so she's um she's a little toddler and our caboose. She's 12 years younger than her ni- nearest sibling. So I have big kids, and then I have this one little little shadow who follows me around.
0: Oh my goodness! Two <laughs> years old. She's three now. Three. Wow. So currently, you are all still in Georgia. Yeah,
1: we're all still in okay. Georgia. My oldest uh, just finished her first year at BYU, and she's going to go serve a mission in Arizona next, starting. The wow, 90th, her. her home MTC check-in date, I think. And yeah. And then my second graduated high school. And so now it's just down to my son who will be a sophomore in high school and my youngest starts preschool this fall.
0: Wow. All across the yeah. board. <laughs> yeah. So I have lots of questions and I think that as we go, as we continue to talk, they will be answered. As you know, if you've listened Those who have listened to my podcast before, one of the reasons I started this is to normalize the asking of questions and allowing doubts as they come up, specifically on a faith journey, but they also come up in life in general. And I'm all about normalizing that as well. I just wanted to create a space where we can talk about them and acknowledge we all have them and it doesn't have to mean anything that we're less of a person or that we're not a believer or that we're less faithful it doesn't mean any of those things unless of course we're believing that they do uh, So the thought occurred to me as you were sharing about your journey being so diverse, you mentioned about some of the demographics from a neighborhood or community mm-hmm. viewpoint trying to introduce elements of diversity into your children's lives through extracurricular activities and and then you also mentioned, what their school experience was like, both in Wisconsin and then in in now Georgia, and how quite different those were. Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but wonder what that looked like within your faith community. You uh, have a very unique family. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would probably venture to say not many, if any, you know, have that, um, the, the structure that you do. What's the word I'm looking for? The the representation maybe is a better word that you do. So I'm curious to know, you know, what that looked like for you all having such a diverse family, you know, and what that looked like in your faith community, and you know, yeah. Just mm. I'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah. So when we lived in California, um, mm-hmm. many states have different language wards. Mm -hmm. Um, our wards that we lived in were English speaking and the diversity was pretty low and because we were in Huntington beach and our ward also served the mid singles. Ours was an interesting ward. It was half a typical ward, half mid singles, but yeah, my children have almost always been the minority at church in some wards. They've been the only children of color. And I'd venture to even say in most our wards, they have been. Um, The only one that's maybe been the most diverse was actually in Wisconsin because our ward was comprised of a large Hmong community. The Hmong community had grown from refugees. I don't know if you know this story. These were uh, Hill Tribe people that helped serve the CIA during the Vietnam War. So these people share the same story as my oldest daughter, They came to the United States um, for refuge because the Vietnamese were going to murder them for serving the CIA. So a lot of these people have incredible oral stories to share. Um, And yeah, we actually had some dear friends in our ward and he was taking all the oral histories of the elders and writing them down. He also um, translated the Book of Mormon into like common Hmong for people. Okay. So that was, that was really the most diverse ward we had. Hmm. So yeah, it's been problematic because we've had comments. We've had to talk to leadership about teachers, things Hmm. that they're sharing or telling children. I remember my oldest was deeply upset one day because they were giving that Book of Mormon lesson about how You know, if you're righteous, your skin will turn white or something like that. Um, That hurt her. Yeah. And and
0: understandably so.
1: We've both tried to make a point to share wherever we are that that's Mm -hmm. not okay. And we, I mean, my husband uh, is a teacher in Elders Quorum. He reminds people about this and every other, you know, harm that can come to our. Our siblings in Christ, when we don't understand our own doctrine or we don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as it applies to each other? I mean, I, so I can say that for another question.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I appreciate your candidness and your openness. Um, your family has definitely had a variety of uh, experiences. I have shared before that my faith journey took. A pivot, what I call a pivot, when uh, I learned, you know, my youngest identifies as LGBTQ. And I have since really come to know that most, if not all, people have or will come to a point where life's circumstances, life's experiences are going to present, uh, you know, things that maybe they've never thought about before or haven't Mm -hmm. had reason to evaluate or consider. And it can be um, kind of earth shattering to to sound kind of cliche, but at the same time, that's, that is how it can feel. So I'm, I would love for you to share, speak to that a little bit about your, your faith journey and maybe some of those times that were really kind of crucial to your faith journey that maybe you felt Mm -hmm. it, it pivot you know? Mm. So I think it's funny because the more I, I talk to
1: people about this, I mean, we all have such unique stories and I think that's mm-hmm. really valuable to listen to and to hear. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in a pretty traditional home. I was given the freedom to learn and explore things at a young age. And I was one of those odd kids who really enjoyed religion and culture in high school. I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas and the Noble oh, truths. And those were all things that I was really interested yeah. in. Like, and that's what kind of took me to Asian studies was the philosophy and the culture, but especially the religion. And those things spoke to me. And it was never, um, it was never, ever spoken that these other things were wrong really, I think the understanding was always that, oh, we have all the truth or whatever. And so it's fine to go and learn these things, just know that we have all the truth. And so that's what I was operating on. But it was all extremely valuable to me. And it informed my own concepts of God and divinity and and how to experience the divine. My mind was a lot more open to ideas as I continued to age. And People often describe like a shelf. There were things that I didn't understand or agree with, but I think because I was programmed to really feel like, just have faith that it'll work out. That was me for a really long time. And it's not at all that I've lost faith. It's just that I feel more emboldened to take a more active role in what faith looks like in my life personally. And so like, I think the other difficult part is to talk about my faith journey is to also talk about my own scrupulosity that I've lived with for over 20 years and my own coming out to myself about my sexuality. Like all these things are woven and intertwined and I can't talk about one without the other. I think spending those really formative years in Utah within that cultural context, while my family felt like outsiders, we still tried to fit in and we still tried to toe that line of being part of that community, whatever that took and whatever it looked like. And so that meant while my mother disagreed with, say, the young women's activity where we learned how to put on makeup, it was still something that I did, right? Okay. And it was, it, and these things feel innocuous and trivial, but when you add them all up, it's almost like death by a thousand pinpricks sometimes because it's the little things after a while that start to add up that are uh, painful and overall traumatic. The thing I often refer people to when I talk about it is pretty recent. It was really with COVID. I have a child with borderline personality disorder, and it was not something we really understood until just very recently. Mm -hmm. And so trying to navigate that and what that entails has been challenging already. Um, But I had a baby in April of 2020 by a C-section. And so that meant I was healing from, you know, abdominal surgery with a brand new child and we were locked at home together. There was no school. We didn't know if we were gonna die the next day. We've washed our groceries and we had people picking up our groceries because we were too scared to even go to the store because we had a baby that wasn't even vaccinated no for anything yet. And so we were just terrified.
0: No kidding. And
1: so church wasn't meeting anymore and things kind of started to fall apart for me. I didn't understand. Why we couldn't make accommodations for the sisters who were single? Why aren't they receiving sacrament, like the rest of us are able to bless our sacrament in our own homes? But some of these women can't even get someone to bring them sacrament. Um, why can't we make accommodations for that? Like all these little things suddenly didn't feel very important anymore, and it was hard for me to let that go when things started to come back and. So, dealing with like the stress of parenting a child with a mental disorder, trying to come back from having a baby, and we were in lockdown, and watching my church community pivot in the most astounding ways, um, it gave me
0: whiplash. And tell me, tell me what you mean specifically by your church community um, pivoting. In astounding it, ways.
1: It so our ward. I mean, and I know it kind of depended on the ward and how good they were at um, putting things together. There were several months where before we ever had like anything that was Zoom called for a meeting, um, and so it, it was just us, right? We were we were blessing the sacrament and taking the sacrament, and I think we would read a scripture and maybe watch something. And that was church for us for several months. And um, in the depths of it with uh, teenagers who were unwilling, (laughs) uninterested, and me seeing that this institution that I had relied on my entire life cannot handle this. um, It's hard for me to trust it. And that wasn't where it all fell apart but that's where it started like a thread began to be pulled for me because i i knew how much money the church had i knew all its access to resources and its capacities and we were saving for a rainy day and if this wasn't a rainy day then what was and it felt like suddenly we were all on our own and and i Have since reestablished my own testimony of a culture of the community. Like the point of church is community. But at the time, it felt like, why are we even going to church when we can? Like, if we can do this all on our own, like, why Um, are we even showing up? And that was really hard for me to come back from. It took us two years. My daughter was two years old before we ever took her to church. Because we were one, terrified of her getting ill, but also because we actually could no longer trust our fellow parishioners. Because what that brought out, what the, what the pandemic brought out in people was um, some of the most shocking things. And it, it was a real um, degradation of trust in the community, in individuals, um, in our country, in our society, and watching what it did to my family. Like it made my husband angry, it made me depressed and it made my children incredibly depressed and anxious. And Mm -hmm. watching that happen to all of the children their age, absolutely broke my heart. Like Mm -hmm. seeing children so young, feeling like there's no hope. (laughs) I've heard it said it's going to take us as a community, as a society, at least seven years to heal from that trauma. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just the fear of a disease we didn't understand. It was what we let it do to us. It hurt our humanity. It really hurt to see that. And it hurt, especially when it was people that I worshipped with that I thought were my family in Christ, but I couldn't trust them anymore because I couldn't trust that they had my children's health or safety in their interest. And it felt like a real betrayal. And so along with that, my one of my children did come out as bisexual and before I ever did, I mean, I was happy that they felt safe to do that for me. And, and then I could be the safe space for them. But I also felt sad in myself that I wasn't able to be out before them. <laughs> I couldn't be the example for them because I didn't know what to do with my own sexuality. When I understood it, it had taken me seven
0: years. Well, and, and you grew up in a different uh, generation for sure. So
1: Yeah. and I, And I didn't even have a word for it. Until mm-hmm. just a few years ago, I I... Oh,
0: I think you did just great. you and <laughs> and as in anything in life, right? when we have more information or we understand things or know more, then we we act from that place. We do the best we can wherever we're at mm-hmm. So I appreciate so much your openness here. I think the personal, the faith journeys that get shared with me here on this podcast are so sacred. They're, they're so personal. And to me, that's just another manifestation of the divine in our life, uh, of heavenly parents who are so aware of each of us on an individual level Mm -hmm. because those journeys are so unique, Yeah there's no two that are alike mm-hmm. um so where would you say you've talked a lot about the journey itself and the different you know places that it's taken you or your family uh how do you make you know move forward how have you learned to move forward um i because of, not in spite of, but because of these different scenarios that you have, you know, have come up in your life, your family's life? How do you um, make your way? So
1: I think the important thing to talk about would be my experience with scrupulosity and how it had manifested, particularly in my early 20s and as a young parent, but uh, came up again it just roared when I started to really understand my own sexuality, like uh, so much self-hatred is involved in that and self-judgment. You're constantly trying to do everything that's right and you want checklists, you want directions, you want specifics of how to make this right. And, And I think it's really seated in that very human feeling of you need control. You need to be able to control your destiny, your environment, whatever it is. So you can feel safe. You don't feel safe. So you need to control something. And because the end of the day, when we pull it back, you know, at 30,000 feet or whatever, there really are no answers. And we can say that we know something, but when it comes to spirituality or religion, <laughs> and I this sounds so heretical, maybe to a lot of people, there are no answers. There really are no answers, and um, I, because my experience with scrupulosity and religious OCD has been traumatic and painful, the only Answer I've really found is that I have to actually lean into uncertainty.
0: Thanks for listening to part one with Charlotte Condi. Subscribe and follow to be notified first when part two publishes in episode 46, where Charlotte continues to vulnerably share about her struggles with scrupulosity, also known as religious OCD. Please see the show notes for more information about this condition. Don't forget, I'm hosting a podcast giveaway. Simply leave a review on Apple Podcasts, screenshot it, and upload it to my Google Doc. After reviewing on Apple Podcasts, for a bonus entry, leave a rating on Spotify. Share this giveaway with a friend. If your friend's name is drawn as winner, you both win a $100 gift card. The link to enter and to the Google Doc is in the show notes or in the bio of my Instagram profile. Come join me in Hopeful Spaces, a Dallas Hope Charities component of Hopeful Discussions, which is sponsored by Mercedes-Benz Financial Services USA. Hopeful Spaces is a monthly parent, caregiver, and ally support group facilitated by Megan Skidmore Coaching. To join is free. Simply send an email to chc at dallashopecharities.org. Visit meganskidmorecoaching.com where you can find this podcast, as well as additional free resources. Check the podcast show notes on any platform for links to sources cited. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram for more and to send me a DM. To help the podcast grow, please follow, rate, and review, as well as share it with a friend. Beyond the Shadow of Doubt is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, which is a part of the Dialogue Journal found at dialoguejournal.com forward slash podcast network. Founder Eugene England was a Mormon writer, teacher, and scholar who wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. My hope is that this podcast is an extension of that vision. Thanks for being here. Until next time.